are listening to the Cambridge Policy Shop, a podcast brought to you by students of public policy at the University of Cambridge. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. How dare you! I have asked you here to sound the alarm. Climate change is the defining issue of our time. In January of 2020, more than 11,000 scientists from 153 countries published a report urging governments and the media to refer to climate change as a serious emergency requiring immediate action. Since then, only 33 countries have formally declared this emergency. Ignoring the scientific community's warnings will continue to have detrimental effects on our most fundamental resources, such as water, with low- and middle-income countries disproportionately impacted. Increased frequency of extreme weather events, flooding, drought, groundwater depletion, and water insecurity are all symptoms of global warming and a changing climate. The immediate consequences are seen in agriculture, increasing hunger and food scarcity, and in infrastructure, debilitating our built environment. Yet, if we look further, the impact of climate change on water results in a domino effect leading to economic disruption, forced migration, and national security threats worldwide. In this episode, we learn about the intersectional impacts of climate change on water resources and explore the issue deeper with two case studies, water stress in India and flooding in Tanzania. From interviews and policy notes by experts and researchers, we consider a way forward in addressing the nexus between water and climate change. Welcome to the second episode of the Cambridge Policy Shop. We are your hosts for this episode. I'm Morgan King. And I am Jimin Sandu. Today, we will explore the impact of climate change on water resources a topic with intersectional impacts threatening the existence and livelihoods of populations around the globe, often disproportionately in developing and vulnerable regions. In this episode, we are bringing together three guests to talk to us about this important issue. Our first guest for today is Dr. Mats Eriksson, who is the Senior Manager of Transboundary Water Cooperation at the Stockholm International Water Institute. Dr. Erickson has more than 25 years of expertise in the field of transboundary water resources management and sustainable development. After applying a focus on climate change, water hazards, disaster risk reduction, and resilience to the most pressing challenges facing our global community. Dr. Erickson, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So would you share with us a little about how climate change fuels water stress and food insecurity? And what are the transboundary consequences? Well, as the atmosphere is heating up globally, it affects the water cycle tremendously. So you get more energy in the atmosphere. That means you speed up the water cycle with water evaporating and forming clouds and then falling back with rain or snow onto the land. and eventually getting into the rivers and back to the sea and so on. So this whole process is is speeding up and it means a lot about um, how water is found in in time and space. And in many cases, it accelerates intense rainfall events, but also make droughts often more 
profound, more more drastic, uh, and maybe longer droughts and and, and more problematic uh, droughts. So the extremities of, of the water cycle is sort of being enhanced, and that's a lot of, of course, a lot of problems to a lot of people around the world. And, and particularly, the climate change impact is never equal. It's it's often strikes harder on low-income countries compared to countries which are more resilient in terms of higher income and, and so on. But it also strikes different on society, with uh, women, children, elderly often being more vulnerable. And, and having to pay the price much harder than, than other people. So you asked about transboundary impact. Well, if you have a hazard striking and causing disasters in terms of, of floods and droughts, and then that means that people are affected in a community, in a village maybe, and in the worst cases, the entire village is washed away in a flash flood, for instance, and people lose everything they have. Um, they have to start over again. They might have a lot of children to take care of and so on. So they're really in a, becomes in, in a very vulnerable position. And of course, that can lead to internal migration within the country or even cross borders. So you sort of spread the impact on, on a larger area. And that means that will be an increased competition for resources, natural resources, water, and also for food resources or the ability to grow food for instance, and that in turn can cause conflicts and tensions. Uh, so there's a cascading knock-on effect of, of several steps that has to be taken into account when, when you look at, at the impact of climate change. So what are some of the geographic areas that have been worst affected by climate-induced water stresses, and how so? I'd like to, in general, highlight three regions or, or areas that are particularly vulnerable. And, and one of them is semi-arid climates, because a semi-arid climate means that you, by nature, have uh, big differences between uh, dry years and wet years. Um, you're sort of in, in the fringe between more uh, humid environment and, and very dry environment. And in those regions, in general, over time, people have adapted to this kind of situation by relying both on agriculture, but also on, on pasture, keeping animals and so on. Because if you have a, a year with poor rainfall and less ability to grow crops, you might rely on the, the animals that you have and keep and so on. So that's a natural way. But over the last century or so, the increase of population and more strict borders means that you cannot, if you are a herder, you cannot move with your animals the same way you did in the past. And so there are increasing tensions and conflicts between, for instance, people relying mainly on agriculture and people that rely mainly on, on, on pasture, being pastoralists. Uh, so the semi-arid regions, that's, that's an area which is very vulnerable. Then, of course, low-lying coasts because of the increasing uh, sea level and you don't need to increase a lot because when you add a storm event with high tides and, and floods coming from the ocean in that in that respect you can create a lot of problems on the low-lying coastal areas with soil erosion abrasion along the coasts loss of farmland etc and the third region that is really vulnerable is, is mountain regions because of the very um, sort of complex uh, landscape features with steep slopes and vulnerable positions in the landscape. That's where you also get a lot of impact from intense rainfall events, for instance, and, and other other hazards. If you want to take examples here, I mean, now currently Afghanistan is suffering a lot from drought since even two years back in time. And that affects a, a big part of the population. So the dry conditions 
is is complicated not only as lack of rainfall but also lack of uh, snowfall during the winter because the snow is very important in the Hindukush Karakoram sort of the western arc of the western part of the the Himalayan arc because the snow is accumulated in the winter and it melts over summer and creates nice water contribution to farm fields and if you lose out on on that snowfall you also don't have that nice contribution of water during the agricultural period. In the coastal areas, of course, Bangladesh is one of the really, really vulnerable countries with a lot of people, big population, also big population living nearby the coast and, and depending on the natural resources, which is now being diminished or destroyed by climate-related water hazards. So how can policymakers ensure a just transition to climate change adaptation? It's important when you try to support adaptation and help people in vulnerable positions to take a bigger picture into account, because as I said, their knock-on effects in, in terms of migration and so on is something that has to be kept uh, in, into the picture. If you work in a, in a transboundary river basin and you support agriculture upstream, that means that you might get less uh, water availability for people and, and, and communities downstream. So you, you need to have that upstream-downstream context in, in, in mind when supporting policies or supporting financial resources to, to adapt to, to the changes. You might also think about um, how you work with, with different sectors in a country or in a region. If you support agriculture again, then maybe it's not an advantage to pastoralists living in the same area and vice versa. So there might be conflicts. You can also look at, at cities and rural areas because Cities are dependent on a large area which, which where the city is located, like like a river basin or so. And in many cases, with the growing, with the urbanization and growing cities, you need more water and other resources to the city. So you might divert water from rivers upstream or in the surrounding of uh, urban areas to support the the city population and the needs. Which means that you might diminish the accessibility of water in the rural areas in the surroundings. You get you might get conflicts between the rural and the urban areas in, in that way. So those kind of situations needs to be taken into account when you plan for an intervention or support for, for adaptation to the changes that climate change is bringing on, on the water resources. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you think is important to highlight to our listeners? I mentioned the knock-on effects of, of unwanted forced migration that might happen as a result from a climate-driven water hazards like a flood or drought. But there, there are a whole range of things that now is sort of being highlighted in, in the linkages between climate and security because when climate impact on, on water in particularly uh, is happening, then you get a lot of negative effects which affect human security. So it's Access to food, we mentioned access to water resources, increased tension for those resources, increased conflicts related to that. But also a lot of unwanted uh, impact, like there's clearly an increased number of trafficking going on, for instance, in Asia, when disasters strike, because people are deprived of their livelihoods, their income and so on, and trafficking is, is something that might be a result, uh, as well as, as recruitment for terror organizations that find in many cases young male population that could be an, an easy recruitment basis for, for those organizations. So there, there are a number of links between climate and security that also needs to be 
better understood. It combines knowledge from different sectors, from the natural resource management sector, but also on, on how society and nations are, are combined. Well, that's all the time we have today. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Erickson. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. An important takeaway from our conversation with Dr. Erickson is how climate's impact on water stress is truly a global and intersectional issue, affecting geopolitical stability, migration, national security, and even the food we eat. You are absolutely right, Morgan. It cannot be overstated how essential it is for policymakers from around the world to engage with one another with great urgency in order to find ways to cooperate and harmonize their efforts in addressing these challenges. Why don't we continue this conversation by building on how climate-induced water scarcity affects food systems by focusing on one specific country, India, and hear from an expert working on the topic. Our next guest is Indra Singh. Indra is a seed steward from India who has traveled to over 1,200 villages in his home country conducting workshops on sustainability, and sustainable farming. He was a campaign manager for Adana Shiva and the Director of Policy and Outreach of the National Seed Association in India. Currently, he is the Director of Green India. In this interview, we will talk about the impact of climate change on agriculture through water scarcity. Indra, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So for those that are new to the subject, would you mind explaining to our listeners the nexus of water resources, climate change, and sustainable agriculture systems in India? In other words, how does climate change affect farming? I think you've hit a crisis point there. Because India and Pakistan may be on the brink of nuclear war in the next 10 years due to shrinking water resources. By 2030, it's estimated that India would have lost more than half of its groundwater resources to either pollution or basically shrinking water resources due to lack of rainfall. So India's, India and Indian farming is going to be devastated in the next 10 years if we don't control climate change. Our rivers such as the mighty Ganga, the Yamuna, and even the rivers of the south have been so contaminated with industrial toxins, with agricultural toxins like pesticides, that the water no longer is drinkable. We have problems such as heavy metal poisoning, which is causing diseases all over the Gangetic Plains. And mind you, as times proceed and we move into the next 10 years, temperature is going to be the major killer in India. We've already had climate refugees, not in 2021, but in 2014. Since 2014, India has recorded climate refugees from the place called Bundelkhand, which due to water scarcity, people could not farm anymore. There was a mass exodus from that area into the slums of Delhi. So climate refugees or eco-refugees, they exist in India and the climate disaster is already upon us. Now let's talk a bit about temperature. When we talk about rising temperatures, well, for, for Britain or anybody watching this in Russia, well, they may think that rising temperature is good for, for crops. That means a longer growing cycle. But in India, the temperatures are already exceeding 50 degrees Celsius. What that means is that 60% of our seeds will not work. What that means is that Indian agriculture will be completely devastated. We are already on the brink. Each year when May, June, July happens, temperatures have come to 50 degrees Celsius. People die in the hundreds and in the thousands. That is what rising climate means to India and the world. 
You touched on some of the pressing challenges facing sustainable agricultural systems. Could you build on how these challenges will affect food systems in India? Rising temperatures, number one, which is going to reverse all the progress that farmers have collectively made for over past 5,000 years. You know, the kind of seeds we've evolved, co-evolved with nature, our women, our seed savers, our farmers, whatever they've done from the sugar cane to the mustard. With rising temperatures, we risk losing all the biodiversity of this country. If not all, at least a good 80 to 90% of biodiversity, food-based biodiversity, will vanish because of rising temperatures. And this is not in the future, this is in 10 years' time. The second biggest threat, of course, is of water. Water is going to, like I said, Norm Chomsky has commented on this, and he said that India and Pakistan may be on the brink of nuclear war. And with the Chinese invasion, well, many people are taking this as a geopolitical step, but people in the environmental sectors and people who are studying water know that the Chinese aggression and taking of Indian territory is all about controlling water of the Indus River. So there are wars that are already in place. Countries are already fighting. Soldiers are dying for controlling water resources, which is going to be the next big challenge. Well, the third one is going to be pollution, both industrial and plastic and other forms, that how our food and the water that we have remaining will not be accessible, will not be used, and there will be a kind of a corporate takeover of water. Which brings me to the fourth and final problem, that now that the disease is being created using corporate ideologies and the destruction of the earth, the solution will be also monetized by the corporations. Today, people who bottle water in the country are selling it for 30 rupees for a liter, which is never heard of. India comes as a, as a, from a culture where selling water was considered a sin. And today, selling water has become a prized thing to do. So we've, we've commodified our nature, we've commodified water. And that only tells us that India is going to have a major, major water crisis and foreign corporations are going to come in and profit from it. I think these are some of the biggest challenges that Indian farmer and Indian sustainability faces right now. So what do you believe is the role of policymakers in addressing these pressing challenges? Policymakers are actually aiding the destruction. No matter how much our Prime Minister Narendra Modi boasts to the world that India is for climate change and India is leading the International Solar Alliance, people sitting in India know how, how big of a veneer that is, basically, to, to distract other people. In reality, the policies of the government is, is chopping down forests, is monetizing natural resources, it's killing the rivers and responsible for the most amount of pollution generated in India in the past 10 decades. So the Modi government has been detrimental to the environment and they are also putting their friends in and monetizing natural commons such as water resources, the forest, the mining, which should not happen. And one way he's telling the world that India will lead climate change. And on the other hand, he's allowing for forests to be destroyed for coal mining. So there is a double speak. Anybody, everybody in India knows this. The rising, when temperatures rise, Modi government is telling people that it's not because of climate change, but rather because people are aging and hence they feel the heat more. So he's using a Trumpian tactic and Trump-like rhetoric to distract the people in India against climate change rather than making them more aware. He's, he's uh, actually arresting climate activists such as Disha Ravi and putting cases against Greta. So that's the real commitment of the government. That's the real face of the government. Policymakers are, are here to capitalize and monetize nature. They have taken the will of the Industrial Revolution and 
unfortunately from the British government and said that the nature is for our for looting and use of man and not for preservation and living in harmony with Building on that, are there any important actions or educational steps that you would recommend to our listeners to investigate after hearing you comment on this topic? Of course, I, I feel that people have sources that they can find out themselves in English. People can read the wire.in, which is reporting on many of these issues, the scroll.in, that is again an English media platform which reports on many environmental issues. Down to Earth is another uh, environmental uh, paper and magazine that reports on it and people should do their own research and not even believe me if, if you look at the facts that the number of trees in india just look at the water just look at the prices of water in the past 10 years what is the price of one liter of water 10 years ago and now and any viewer can understand that how there is a new shortage because the price of water is going up every single year. So if you just look at some basic commodities and see how there is a price rise, they can understand the, the real state of shrinking resources in today's, in today's India. When it comes to food, just look at the cancer in the country, look at the diabetes in the country, look at the impotency and the infertility that's rising. So all these food style based diseases, when we compare the stats and see how India is becoming the big, big capital of all these diseases, we know that India is going the unsustainable way. Just look at coal mining. Just look at the kind of water pollution there is. Just look at how China is coming, taking over Indian water resources. So all these factors speak the truth. They don't need to believe me. But do your own research. As Lord Russell has said, whenever there's a problem, one should find their own facts. And I urge the viewers to do their own digging up and see the, how the prices of these commodities have moved in their own countries and how they've moved in, how they've increased in India to get a good example and get a good, get a good uh, comparison of what's going wrong in our country, India. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We're so grateful for your time and perspective. Thank you. One point that stood out to me was that the corporate takeover and commodification of water will further exacerbate water insecurity severely in India. And this is relevant around the world too. And not to mention that rising temperatures are already devastating agriculture and biodiversity in the country, leading to climate refugees and even wars fueled by water. How about we jump to another case in which climate change is disproportionately and catastrophically affecting water supply, and this time in abundance. Our guests are Virginia Summers and Holly O'Neill, who are both completing graduate degrees in African Studies and Polar Studies here at Cambridge. They are active members of the Cambridge Development Initiative, a student-led organization committed to improving the well-being of communities in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. As part of this initiative, they are leading a group of researchers looking at the causes, consequences, and potential mitigation mechanisms of flooding in this city. In today's episode, we're talking with them to explore their research. Virginia, Holly, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. So why was it important for your team to research flooding in Dar es Salaam? You know, with CDI, it's very much focused on Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And I think both you and Ginny can attest to this, even when we were looking at initial topics for this project, we wanted to incorporate what CDI had previously done without repeating, you know, projects or research. And I think that something that came up time and time again, given that we were the climate change resilience team, was the impacts of climate change and one being weather. You know, for my own research, it's something that I'm very much interested in is the influence that climate change has on weather in different countries. So when you look at somewhere like Dar es Salaam, 
you know, they have these natural rainfall seasons each year, but it's been kind of researched and it's been looked into and you can see that these rainfall events, they're going to be occurring much more frequently because of climate change and their impacts are quite devastating when they do occur. And it's interesting to look at as well is that places like Dar es Salaam, which have, they have the greatest impact or the greatest burden to bear in terms of climate change, but they're the ones who've contributed the least. So I think through all of us kind of discussing the different topics that would be kind of our own expertise, we kind of came upon, you know, rainfall and how, because they have such a multitude of impacts when these rainfall events occur due to flooding and different things like that. So it's estimated that about 2 million of the city's population are affected by floods directly or indirectly. Can you also elaborate on the ways in which residents are affected? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that when we initially looked at it, it was a case of, okay, well, you know, we have formal and informal settings here in Dar es Salaam. So obviously there's going to be different impacts based on where you live. So, and that's something, you know, with flooding, it reaches everybody. It has indirect and direct impacts on both formal and informal settings. Um, like flooding events, like you see the images online um, being reported, you see these burst river banks, you see these flooded roads. That's a very direct impact of these rainfall events, these flooding events, but on like this really severe scale, the severe end of the scale, you have deaths occurring. And, you know, each year, each flooding season, you will have deaths that occur in Dar es Salaam as a direct result of this flooding, which is horrible. And then on the other side, you have these more indirect impacts, the, you know, you're flooding damaging infrastructure, you have impacts on the sewage and drainage systems, and that's something we touched on in our report. And it's these knock-on effects. You have these knock-on effects in the community and you have these knock-on effects for the economy of Dar es Salaam as well. I mean, I think it was in the 2018 report that the World Bank did. It was that flooding costs between 107 million and 227 million in economic costs, you know, yearly. If you have these countries that are trying to develop and trying to catch up with, let's say, countries such as like America or Canada or even Ireland, if you're constantly being bashed with these huge events, then how are they meant to catch up, per se? And I think that's one of the main things that we actually focused on, whereas initially looking at the weather, okay, and this is the climate of it, it's going into these, okay, what are the, you know, direct and indirect effects? And we saw on the informal settlements that they're the ones who are bearing this burden the most in terms of the magnitude or how severe these impacts are when these flooding events occur. So, Ginny, I understand that your team uh, is also proposing a number of policy options to help mitigate this risk of flooding. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So one of CDI's big things is that anything that we propose in a paper, we want to give recommendations about how we can help mitigate those problems moving forward. So our really big focus in our recommendation section was making sure that we gave nuanced recommendations that could be applied to both informal and formal areas specifically. So we mainly looked at early warning systems, solid waste management, education, and online and social media platforms, as all of these could be varied and just like a tweaked a bit to fit different contexts. Um, so for early warning systems, for example, you could have very rudimentary, simplistic, color-coded systems where it's just green, yellow, red, and anyone in the community can look at that in the river and get a sense where the water levels are and if they're rising during a rain or during the flood season. 
On the other hand, you can also have a national stream gauge system, which the government would run and which would incorporate a lot of technology, would be able to send out SMS warnings. But obviously that relies on a lot more government coordination, funding, and so on. So that's just giving you a sense of how solutions can be tailored to fit different uh, contexts in cities like Dar es Salaam, where the lived experience of citizens is not the same. And so solutions to issues like flooding should also not be the same. Can our listeners do anything to support your team's research or the broader work that CDI is doing on the ground in the city? Yeah, so if you want to learn more about what we're doing, you can look at our website, cambridgedevelopment.org. If you have any questions, you can also email us at info at cambridgedevelopment.org. We do work outside of just climate uh, resilience. We also look at food security, economic development, education, health, entrepreneurship. So issues across the spectrum. We also have rolling applications for volunteers. So the next time that there's an application deadline coming up, you can check our website and get more information about that. In addition, we also do partner work with an organization in Dar es Salaam called Kite. So you could also go to our website to find more about that and find out more about what NGOs in Dar es Salaam are doing to work on these problems because we're really just helping them. All right, uh, Virginia, Holly, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, it was great hearing from you guys. Thank you. So Morgan, the conversation with Holly and Ginny really highlighted how places like Dar es Salaam that have not been big polluters like more wealthy countries are dealing with the devastating consequences of climate change, such as flooding, that can result in a loss of incomes, homes, and even lives. One thing that was very clear is that there is not just one solution to mitigate the risk of flooding. A comprehensive response that takes into account the multifaceted and complex nature of flooding and the nuance of local realities is really important. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Cambridge Policy Shop. I'm Morgan King. And I am Jima Sandu. And now let's hear from some researchers and students working at the nexus of climate and water during our final segment, Policy Notes. My name is Rebecca Peters, and I'm an Academy Fellow at Chatham House and a DPhil candidate at the University of Oxford, where I study urban water security in developing countries. Water security is defined as the reliable availability of an acceptable quantity and quality of water for human health, ecological well-being, and economic production. My research begins with the paradox in Bangladesh, embodied by a phrase emblazoned on a bridge crossing the mighty Buriganga River. Nodi bachle bachbedesh, firi ambo shonadesh. This translates to, if the river lives, the country will live and bring back golden Bangladesh. And yet, the bridge that this phrase is written on crosses one of the most polluted rivers in the world. The discharge of untreated wastewater from major industries, as well as from agriculture and domestic waste, have left rivers in Dhaka severely polluted. Climate change further exacerbates these issues during the dry season. Millions of people living in riverine communities use river water each day for transportation and their livelihoods. I'm Vivek Grewal. I'm a Fulbright Scholar and a student of hydrology at the University of Arizona. 
I want to share with you a perspective on groundwater management in India. My point echoes the work of Dr. Tushar Shah that India has two broad groundwater regimes and they need accordingly different management approaches. The first regime is the Indo-Gangetic Plain in the north, running parallel to the curve of the Himalayas. The groundwater here lies in thick, connected alluvial aquifer, basically unconsolidated sand particles with a lot of water in between. The second is the Indian Peninsula in the south. It is dominated by hard granite-like rocks where there is much lesser water, mostly among the rock fractures. Eleanor Ostrom's first principle for participatory management of the commons is defining resource boundaries. This is possible in peninsular India, which has relatively small pockets of aquifers, often comprising only a few villages. So the way to go here is participatory groundwater management, which brings people together to budget their water collectively. And many organizations are doing this successfully. This is not possible in the Indo Gangetic aquifer because of its massive size and population. Sustainability here must be governed primarily by financial incentive, like shifting from per unit subsidy of electricity to other forms of fixed subsidies which do not incentivize pumping as much. The policy should complement the science of groundwater. My name is Anakha Verma and I'm an MPP student at Cambridge. As a professional who has worked in the water management sector in India, I can say that India already has solutions to water challenges, but is inefficient at implementation. 90% of groundwater is used just by farmers in India, making India the biggest extractor of groundwater in the world. Lack of political will, lack of trained professionals, non-availability of reliable data of resources, and vested interest are some of the existing barriers hindering the progress towards better water management. Some potential policy recommendations are that, apart from realigning cropping patterns, new innovative techniques can be introduced to adopt climate-resilient agriculture. The irrigation infrastructure needs to be improved as the water distribution for agriculture is skewed. There should be strict policies to enforce conjunctive water management practices such as rainwater harvesting and recharging of groundwater. You have just listened to the Cambridge Policy Shop. If you would like to submit a policy note for our next episode, follow us on Twitter at at CamPublicPolicy. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and Apple Music. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. Mm-hmm.